Good morning. It is great to see all of those beautiful Christmas sweaters out there today. In fact, we saw many of them in first service, and uh, here's some of them that we saw online. Mine uh, is actually, I don't know if you saw this or not, I can see it at home. It is the Velocirapture, which when you are preaching on Revelation is perfect. Uh, here we have one with cats on it as well, uh, which I was instructed that those are not made from real cats, just in case anybody was curious, which the very fact that that was that disclaimer probably tells us there's a pretty good chance there were. And several others that were taken, some watching from home, worshiping from home. There's my family and uh, several others. So uh, if you have an ugly Christmas sweater on and want to take a picture of it and uh, put it on Facebook or Instagram, you can use the hashtag Ugly East Point with that, and you can also search for those on there and have some good time. So great to see faces smiling and laughing in this year that indeed has been very trying for all of us, isn't it? And uh, so, uh, so yeah, and speaking of sermons, uh, how about that sermon yesterday? Did we, uh, we see that one, 331 yards rushing from Mr. Sermon? Um, I've, I've, I've had some sermons that have gone for 331 yards, apparently, but uh, that uh, normally takes about 45 minutes or so, so we'll cut that short today. Uh, but hey, uh, here's what's going on. Christmas Eve, uh, we want you to be here at 3.30 and 5. I know some of you got dragons. Uh, if you didn't get one yet, we have some back there on the table. You can take a picture of that and, uh, and uh, post it along with an invite. Uh, put that in your manger scene. We're going to tell you what that's all about on Christmas Eve and uh, we would love to, to have that. If you're watching, if you're worshiping from home, uh, and you'd like a dragon, let us know. We can get you one. Just send us a message, and we'll make sure and connect you with that. So here's what's where we've been at in this whole Christmas uh, in Revelation, Christmas in Exile series, as we've been talking about. Week one, we talked about Revelation one. The Christ who is all-powerful shows up to John while he is exiled on the island of Patmos. And here he is in prison, basically. Jesus shows up to him. It's clear that Jesus is the one with all the authority, yet the picture isn't of Jesus on the throne, but rather with Jesus walking amongst the churches and empowering the churches. It's such a cool image that we see there. And we learn that the Christ who dwelt with us reigns among us. Then in week two, we took a look at Revelation 4 and 5 and this great picture uh, where we see Jesus from the manger to the throne, really, where, where God is sitting on the throne and he's holding the scrolls with the seven seals. And the scroll is the picture of God's judgment, of God's unveiling, restoration of the whole world that we long for. And yet no one was worthy to open the seven seals. And so John is weeping in heaven. And finally, one of the, the mighty angel comes to him and says, Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy. And John looks, but instead of seeing the lion of the tribe of Judah, he looks and he sees a lamb that was slain and yet is standing, has been victorious over death. And we learn that it's Jesus, the vulnerable lamb, has won the greatest victory. And last week we took a look at Revelation verses, or chapter 6 through 8, where Jesus is taking these scrolls and he's undoing the seals. And the first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it looks like things are just going on as normal in the world with all the famine and all the plagues and all the death and all the wars. And yet, and this fifth seal is opened, and it's the cries 
of the saints crying out, the prayers crying out for justice. And, and later on, after the sixth seal, we see there that there's a half hour of silence in heaven for the prayers of the saints to be heard. And we learn that prayer empowers us to endure with the eternity of others in mind. This week, we jump forward to take a look at Revelation 10 and 11. And what we see is that in chapters 8 and 9, the seven trumpets are starting to blow, which are seven judgments of God. And if you don't think that a trumpet is a fitting instrument for, uh, for judgment, then clearly you've never had a junior high student who's trying to learn to play the trumpet. It's an excellent symbol of judgment. And, and, and as these trumpets are being played, we see these judgments being doled out on the earth. But then between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, the final trumpet, we see another gap. But this time the gap isn't for prayer as it was between the sixth and the seventh seal, but rather this one is about witness. In the midst of God's unveiling of the seals, it was shown that His people's role was to pray. And now as the trumpets are blowing, we're learning that part of our role in addition to praying is to be God's witnesses. And the Christmas story when we think about it, it's a story that was always centered around sharing it, wasn't it? After Jesus was born, the shepherds were standing there in the fields, and who comes to them but angels? God's messengers come, and they alarm the shepherds and call them to go and worship. And both the shepherds and the wise men, of course, not only were the angels sharing the story, there was another part of creation that was sharing the story, which of course was... The star, which incidentally, there's a whole deal with like, was it, is it, is it Neptune and Jupiter coming together or something right now? It's kind of a cool thing. You should look it up, Google it, look up in the sky tonight and be like, oh, that's kind of cool. But the reality is, is that when God commands his creation to share something, creation responds to its creator without fail, except for humans. You see, when we looked up there at the, at the stars, the stars didn't fail to share the message, did they? Creation has been faithful to share that message. The angels didn't fail to share that message. And when we look at humans, our track record isn't quite as great, is it? So who would you entrust to share the most important message in all of history? Would you entrust it to the angels who have never really let God down, with the exception of Satan, of course? Would you entrust it to the stars or other parts of creation that have always obeyed God's call? Or would you entrust it to human beings who fail all the time? Here in chapter 10, we're going to see the answer. And as we go through here, you're going to see that chapter 10, it parallels chapters 4 and 5 and that great throne room scene in heaven. Just as Jesus' role was to undo the seals that were going to happen with this scroll, there's another scroll that appears, and you're going to see whose responsibility it is here. 
It says, then I saw, in verse 1, another mighty angel. This is the second mighty angel we see. The other one, of course, in chapter 5. Coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. Rainbow imagery, again, was used in chapter 4 of Revelation. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea, and he put his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now here we have it. The angels, once again, are being faithful to God's command, the mighty angel. Here we have the thunder. The creation is being faithful to God's command. What about us? Verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven like he's swearing in at a courtroom. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days that the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Here's where it gets interesting. Verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. Now again, angels and Bibles aren't these fluffy little cherubs. They're warriors. This one happens to be like straddling the sea and the land here. He's huge. No, no, why don't you go take the scroll from his hand? (laughs) It says, John said, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Sounds like he's bossing the angel around a little bit at first reading. We know that's not the case, of course. And he said to me, take and eat it. Well, I'd never really eaten a scroll before of you. I mean, we talk about eating God's Word. What's he talking about here? Well, this is looking back to Ezekiel chapters 1 and 3. If you read the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, you'll see that he was given a vision of God, and then he was given a scroll, which was a message to the nations. It was a message of repentance. And just like Ezekiel's scroll had certain attributes we're going to find that this scroll that John has has the same attributes. Remember, Revelation isn't understood best by looking forward, but by looking back. So the other 500 references from the Old Testament that it includes. And so it says, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Apparently this scroll is going to go down like a gas station burrito. Sweet in your mouth, but it's going to tear your stomach up. Friends, is this not the truth of the gospel message? This little scroll that we have been called to share In our lives, this means by eating it that we are to internalize its message. 
It's not merely to be something that gets in our heads, but something that literally gets inside of us, in our belly, in our hearts. We are to not only be people who know God's word, but carry it out. And this is where it gets bitter, isn't it? We hear God's word of hope, and it's sweet to the taste. And then as we strive to live out that hope, our stomach starts to churn. We have a word, a person that we want to share that hope with, and we are eager and excited to share. And then as we share with them, we see that look of rejection and know that they're really not interested the way that we hoped they would be. That is the bitter nature of the gospel. It is sweet to the taste, but man, it sits heavy on the stomach. And some of you have had the sweet taste of a desire to share with a friend or a family member or a coworker for years, and that bitterness still longs in your stomach because you want to see them respond. But we can't make them respond, can we? We can only be faithful to share. So it says here in verse 10, I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. When things are repeated in the Bible, it's for a reason. Just as this was repeated here, it's meant to sit with us in a heavy way. And in verse 11, it tells us what this scroll means. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Who was it that was entrusted with the gospel message? The angels? Creation? Or us? The word we get from John, of course, is that God's image bearers are his message bearers. That you and I who are created in God's image as the special part of creation are to be the ones who share his hope. Even as fallible and as broken as we are, God has entrusted us with the gospel message. And it will be sweet in the mouth and bitter in the belly. There are three things that I see that are worth pointing out about this as we, his message bearers, process this message. The first one we see in this passage is that God's message bearers, bearers experience both the sweetness and bitterness of the gospel. My guess is, is you'll be reminded of this even this week as you sit around a table or sit around a Zoom call or FaceTime with some of your family members, whatever it looks like for you this Christmas, and you'll see faces that have drifted from Christ, faces you long to be in the church. Some of you even bear a heaviness of your perceived responsibility in all of this, whether that is accurate or not, I do not know. But we feel that weight, don't we? We carry that weight. 
not just upon our shoulders, but we carry it in our stomachs. God's message bearers experience both the sweetness and bitterness of the gospel. Then chapter 11 runs us into a, a parallel passage, a passage that's saying the same thing, but in a different way. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. This is really just pointing back to the, the message of Ezekiel once again. Ezekiel has all kinds of weird uh, measuring rods and staffs and everything else in his book. Um, it's a long book. It's a weird book, but it's a good one. Verse 2, it says, But do not measure the temp court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, as they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, the question I've always had when I, when I read this passage is, well, who in the world are the two witnesses? Well, who are these two guys or girls? Or who are they? And I've always tried to look forward instead of looking back. But as I look back, we see that a lot of commentators that they suggest that the, that the best identity of these two witnesses is that they're symbolizing Moses and Elijah. Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the great prophet. Both Moses and Elijah were there with Jesus at the Transfiguration, you might remember, uh, back in the Gospels. We see that. And it, and it makes sense that, figuratively speaking, it's not about who it is that's somebody else, but what they're symbolizing for us as God's message bearers. We're to be the message bearers. And what they teach about us, that idea of the law, the truth, do you look out in our culture today and see an absolute decay of truth? Yeah. I mean, just look at our, our, our political mess that we've created. Nobody knows what to believe anymore. Nobody knows what truth is. It seems to have evaporated in our midst, and here we are called to be people who reveal the truth about God. And I just wish that we as Christians could wrap our minds around the idea that the truth of God is what will set people free. Not the truth about any political party. It's not the donkey or the elephant. It's the, it's the lion and the lamb that sets us free. And then this idea, not only of the law, but of the prophets. The, 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 the prophet is the one who embodies the law of God and lives it out. This isn't just to be a message that is upon our lips. This is a message that is to be upon our limbs, our hands, our feet. As we take the message of hope to the world. And it says that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Well, that would make witnessing a little bit easier, wouldn't it? Yeah, where is that at? Man, I, I, there's a few times I would have liked to called that down. A few times, I remember when I was preaching early on in college, I think I might have even tried to call that power down. And here we have this amazing power that these two witnesses have. It seems like they're being protected. It says uh, that if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. 
They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. It's looking back to Moses and the plagues he called out on Egypt, isn't it? The message is clear is that these messages are going to be empowered. You and I, we're going to be empowered. And it'd be great if the story ended there, wouldn't it? Call down fire. I'm going to be protected. Nobody can hurt us. And yet it says in verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, my guess is, is they didn't get a notice in the mail when that came. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Well, that took a turn, didn't it? Not even given the decency of a burial. Even Jesus was given the decency of a burial. And here's what we find God's message bearers are both empowered and vulnerable. We are empowered through the gift of the Holy Spirit to speak into people's lives words of hope and encouragement and transformation and calls to repent. And yet, we are also, just like Jesus was empowered, we also are made vulnerable. However, it would work best in God's plan. But we don't know when we go into a conversation whether we're going to be empowered or left vulnerable or a little bit of both, do we? The only way we know is to speak boldly through the fear. The reality is, is that you and I are never going to get over our fear of sharing by waiting for the, the fear to go away. We might get paranoid that way. The way we overcome the fear is to step right through it. The way we overcome the fear is speak even when our hands are shaking. God's message bearers are both empowered and vulnerable. And for these two examples, it meant it cost them their life. For you and I, it might not be our life, but it very well could be friendships, respect from family members. As our nation continues to go down a path uh, to become a more post-Christian place, we will find that the damage to relationships will be very difficult for many of us to bear. It will be... will leave us with a very sick stomach. Verse 9, for three and a half days, some of the people, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. That sounds like Christmas. But this time, instead of rejoicing over God's gift, They're going to be rejoicing over the death of God's messengers, giving presents to one another 
almost mocks the Christmas story, doesn't it? Because these two prophets had been a torment on those who dwell on the earth. Revelation talks about the saints, those followers of God, and those who dwell on the earth, who are committed to the ways of the world. But, in verse 11, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. Again, a picture back to Ezekiel 38. Remember dry bones, dry bones? Mm-hmm. A breath of life of God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Because you and I have walked in a funeral home before, and you and I know that if that body stands up and gets out of the casket, we're out of there. All right? This is not natural, but this is not merely a body being revived. This is a body being resurrected, or in this case, two bodies being resurrected. This is the hope that we have. How long was Jesus in the tomb? Three days. How long are these gentlemen or these people in the tombs? Not even in the tombs. How long are they dead? Three and a half days, a little while longer. And yet our hope is that the same breath from heaven will come to us. The same breath that entered Adam will enter our dry bones someday and we will rise up from the grave never to experience mourning or death or sickness or pain or sin ever again. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them, thinking like, oh boy. And at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The third thing that we see here, the third promise, is that God's message bearers experience both death and resurrection. Sometimes that death is at the hands of others, but always that death is when we die to ourselves and choose to live for Christ instead. About 10 years ago, a high school student who was raised in a Muslim home chose to start following Christ. While she was able to hide this from her parents for a while, eventually some people at her mosque found out and word got back to her family, which would have been a very shameful thing in that culture. And so Rivka Berry was left with no choice. Her dad gave her time and his kindness to renounce but told her he would have no choice but to kill her if she did not renounce Christ. So one night, Rivka, who was on pace to be her school's valedictorian, escaped her home. But before she did, she left the following note. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I refuse to deny Him, nor will I ever I pray and hope he finds, you find his mercy and forgiveness. I love you both dearly. I don't know what is more powerful, her bold confession of Jesus or her bold acknowledgement of her love to those who were trying to take her out. What ensued was a series of legal battles that eventually allowed Rivka to hide in peace until she was 18 and make her own decisions legally. Ten years later, she is still following Christ, but she cannot let anyone know publicly where she lives as she still fears for her life. 
Her story has inspired millions to follow Christ completely and be bold about sharing their faith. But here's the deal. Her story didn't take place in Saudi Arabia. It didn't even take place in New York City. It took place about five miles that direction in a place called New Albany. Now, every year we hear the radio song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. But the real question that we need to ask is it if we'll shout it from the mountain, but if we'll speak it in the streets to our neighbors and our friends and our family. Like Rivka, it could cost us everything we know. But what this story doesn't tell us but what implies is that this bitter message in our stomach won't be bitter forever. When Christ returns, it will be sweet both in our mouth and in our stomach forever and ever and ever. And friends, that is a message that needs to be shared. Father, we trust in You. We believe in You. And we know, Lord, that You have called us to carry forth this Gospel message. You have given us this little scroll to share the hope of God's bigger scroll, God's restoration of the whole world through His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we just recognize that there's, there's not a thing that You're calling us to do that, we, that You haven't already faced Yourself and overcame. And we recognize, Lord, that just as you walked on this earth and just as you faced that, that rejection from those who loved, those who you loved, that we will face that rejection too. But we pray, Lord, just like you and just like these two bold witnesses and just like Rivka, Lord, that you would empower us by your spirit to hold fast, to stand firm, and to share boldly. We do it because you did it, Jesus, because you empowered your early church to do it, because you're empowering people in places like China where there's massive rejection today to do it, and because you're empowering us to do it today too. May we be bold and carry forth the message of Christ. Amen.